0: Morning, everyone. Good to see you all and uh, it's lovely to be with you again in Bethany. It's all nice It's always nice to get asked back. You sort of feel like you haven't done that much damage the, the first time you were here. so um, and I love, I love your title. I listened to Ian's um, David sent me Ian's talks and I listened to Ian's uh, last two weeks. so I send Ian it's a hard act to follow. But I love, the, I love the the talk, Jesus is everything, because he is everything. And it reminds me, about five years ago, we did a little bit of an um, analytical view on our discipleship program in Emmanuel, and um, we basically asked the question to everybody, what is discipleship? And we asked all our elders, we asked all our staff, we asked some key people in church, and we got different answers from just about everybody but all good answers all they were all okay but we began to realize that we didn't really have a clear aspect of what discipleship was so we coined a little phrase in emmanuel that discipleship is following jesus in all of life and basically similar to your own jesus is everything following jesus and so if you asked anybody in emmanuel now what is discipleship they'll tell you it's following Jesus in all of life. And then we went into the process of teaching people what that means, how to how to follow Jesus in your marriage, how to follow Jesus in the handling of your finances, how to handle Jesus as an employee or an employer and on and on you could go, how to follow Jesus in all of life. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, prayer and worship and presence this morning. Thank you to the Worship team, you just sent my, or sang my most favorite song, that last one. I love that song. And um, thanks to Benjamin, too, for communion. That was beautiful, the way you led communion. And um, if you haven't read any of Dean Ortland's books, you should grab them. That book, Deeper, is fantastic. He writes another one called Gentle and Lowly, which is a pretty phenomenal book. So, um, great. <laughs> It's interesting actually how different whenever you study the life of Jesus and you look how Jesus acted in people. And I've loved reading the Gospels over the years. And no matter where I'm reading, I tend to read the Gospels along with that and study the life of Jesus. It's interesting actually in our culture today, we're always trying to have a meeting. Henry Cloud writes a great book called Death by Meeting. And, um, and we're always in meetings, 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 meetings. And in business, they are going from one meeting to another meeting all the time. And um, and so it's, it's how can how can we have another meeting? It's kind of funny actually because when you read when you when you study the life of Jesus, you find that he did the opposite. He was always trying to get out of meetings. He was always trying to get away from the crowd to be alone with the Father. We're always trying to get away from solitude to get into a meeting. And um, Jesus was doing the opposite. He was always going the opposite way. He was always trying to pull away from the crowd. Not that he. He didn't love the crowd, but he realized that intimacy with the Father was of such importance. And so, um, throughout the God story, the overriding theme is encounter. It always is, all right? It's never not been about encounter with God. The story of the Bible, right from the beginning, it's never not been about encounter. God wanting to be with his people, God wanting that sort of um, constant communion, and covenant relationship of commitment and steadfast. It has always been about presence, always. All right. Um, I want to read a passage of scripture. I put it on the slide, um, but I'm sorry, it's a little bit um, off the edges there. Trying to get it all on the one. didn't do a very good job. But it's in John 4, and in John 4, it's Jesus meeting with the woman at the well, verse 21, and it says this: that the woman, uh, of course. Jesus has met this woman at the well. And um, this is one of those passages in Scripture that makes you realize that people are more important than principles. Always remember that. People are more important than principles. Jesus broke every principle in the book here, talking to a woman alone, talking to a Samaritan, talking to a woman like this. On and on he could go, because the person was more important than the principle. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will see they're having this argument about, or this discussion about worship. She's a Samaritan, which believes that they go to a certain place to worship. Jesus is a, uh, coming from the Jewish background, believing that Jerusalem is a place to, to worship. She says, believe me, time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. That's some statement, isn't it? We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now God always honors and blesses the public reading of his word, and today is no different. So God, we ask you that you would speak for your sons and your daughters are listening. God is sheer being. He wants us, our true selves, our beings, to be in deep and loving connection with him. This is what worship is. Worship isn't just about singing songs, by the way. This is worship. We're worshiping now in the Word. What Benjamin done was worship. We're worship. Everything in our lives is worship if we get it right. And I believe what has happened is over the the, the decades and over the centuries, strongholds have crept in, strongholds that creep into the church and weaken the church. Now, when you talk about a stronghold, I've taught um, over the years to our own church about stronghold, and I've developed a little um, a diagram, my own uh, thoughts around this about what a stronghold is, because a stronghold is literally just a house made of thoughts. That's what it is. And it comes, if you can follow me And it, it comes from the bottom up, all right? You build a house from the bottom up. So you can see the foundations of your thought life because you are what you think. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so your thought life is really important. And out of your thought life, out of that step one, we start to value what we think, even though it's wrong. We start to value it. We start to place a value on it. And then what happens is we... We, we live our lifestyle action then changes to that value. And then what happens is you can see the red line up the side, the old devil just puts a roof on that and just makes it a stronghold, bonds it into your life and continually. So if you grow up with this idea that you're not worth anything or you're not good enough and that thought pattern radiates through your life, then you'll start to value it. You'll start to live in that way. You'll start to live like you're of no value to anybody. You'll start to live like you're not good enough. And then the lifestyle action creates that. And then we get all kinds of habits and all kinds of things that actually try to feed because you're not feeding on the right thing. And the enemy moves into that and creates a stronghold. And it's really important to break strongholds in your life. And the way to break a stronghold, actually, believe it or not, now this this next slide looks the same, but it's not, all right? You can see the red line up the side as the Holy Spirit moves in, because you can actually build good strongholds. You can build really good strongholds. And so what you need to do, what happens when people try to demolish strongholds in their life, what they try to do is they try try to demolish it from the top down. You can't demolish a stronghold from the top down, because it's too strong. The enemy has put a roof over your lifestyle and over your value and over your thoughts. The only way to to demolish a stronghold is to to demolish it the way you built it from the ground up. And um, modern counselling calls it CBT, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy, which is a wonderful thing, all right? But um, God came up with it first (laughs) in Romans 12. It's not to be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Change how you think. And so if you change how you think, what happens as you change how you think, you begin to value that new system. You see what I mean? And then your lifestyle begins to change, and the Holy Spirit actually puts a roof on that and makes it a good stronghold, and you become a person who's consistent in their thought life. And that I just felt it was really important to say that because I think... These strongholds have demolished the work of God in our lives. And I'm, I'm a bit like Benjamin, I'm a bit of a visual learner, so sorry for all the, these are my own little inventions. Um, and if, if we believe we're tripartite, which we are, all right, and we're body, soul, and spirit, we've got two intakes. We, we've Our eyes and our ears, our senses are the way we take things in. So if we continually are watching the wrong thing, if we're continuing listening to the wrong information, then it feeds us in the wrong way. We've got to feed our spirits. And, one of the things that any great church will do, and this is what I love about this church, is that they will teach their people to become self-feeders. If this is all you're depending on for your week's um, faith journey, then you—well, especially this morning, you're, it's, it's not going to work. All right? It's not going to work. You need to, need to become self-feeders. You need people that feed into that spiritual intake because what goes in comes out. <laughs> What comes in, and if you feed rubbish in, rubbish comes out. You see the behavior at the bottom. So, what, what goes in comes out. And so, if we're feeding, if it's all natural, if it's all, if, if, like, I'm not opposed to box sets at all. But if we just live our lives in box sets, if we just live binging in, in box sets seven nights a week, then there's, there's going to be, it's just not going to feed your soul. It's not going to feed your soul. And if you have a night to watch a box set, that's okay, that's fine. But um, all I'm saying is we've got to feed our souls in a good way. Now, um, this is what happened to the disciples, because the disciples, when Jesus prayed in Luke 11, where we get the great um, Lord's Prayer, which isn't really the Lord's Prayer, it's a pattern prayer. John 17 is the really... Uh, important Lord's Prayer. Not that this one wasn't important, but what he was teaching was not just to say this prayer over and over again, which is okay to do. He's teaching us a pattern. He's saying, when you pray, pray this way. He's teaching them the pattern to prayer. And um, as he's teaching in this certain place, when he had finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, again, imagery and my mind goes to what I think happened here. What I think happened here. They've they've watched Jesus heal the sick. They've watched Jesus give sight to the blind. They've watched Jesus cast out demons. And that is all really impressive. And they've loved that. And they want to be part of this. But when they heard him pray, something happened. When they heard him connecting with his father, they said, that's what we need. That's what we need. Isn't it interesting they didn't say, Jesus, show us how to cast out demons. Show us how to heal the sick. Saying, they're saying, whatever you just done, whatever you just done there with your Abba, with, with Daddy God, we want that. Lord, teach us to connect with the Father the way you just connected. Now, they saw something in that moment that made them yearn for what Jesus did. They wanted the real thing. You've buried one of your elders there, I'm gathering, Mr. McCoy. Um, I want to talk to you about this guy called Elijah McCoy, all right? Um, Elijah McCoy was uh, born on the 2nd of May, 1844. He was born in Ontario in Canada. And he was born to George and Mildred McCoy. The McCoys were fugitive slaves, and um, they had escaped from Kentucky to Canada via the Underground Railroad. And it was realized early in Elijah's life that he was a genius. He was just a genius, Um, showing strong interest in mechanics. And his parents arranged for him actually back then, believe it or not, to come to Edinburgh in Scotland um, at the age of 15 for an apprenticeship in mechanical engineering. And he returned home to Michigan after becoming certified as a mechanical engineer. And despite his qualifications, he was unable to, to find work as an engineer in the United States because of the whole racial barrier and him being colored. He couldn't get African-Americans at that time, were, regardless of their training or background, just couldn't get uh, high-level jobs. And so McCoy accepted a, a position as a fireman and oiler on the Michigan Central Railroad. And it was said that the whole commerce at that time was all dependent on the railroad. The early trains would go for a few miles, and then um, the oil team, the the train would have to stop. So it would literally go five or six miles, and because it was metal to metal, what they would do, the oilers then, the train would stop, and the oilers would get out, and they would oil the axles. And then the train would go off again. They'd do five or six miles. Then these oilers would have to get out and oil the axles again. So it was... Very laborious and um, putting long breaks onto making journeys very long. Now, after studying the problem um, and the existing oiling of the axles, McCoy invented this thing on the right hand side. It's called the McCoy lubricating cup. And basically, what it did was you filled it with oil and it it dripped oil onto the axle. Very ingenious. piece of mechanical engineering and it evenly oiled all the engine moving parts and he he actually obtained a patent for the invention which allowed trains to run continuously for long periods of time without pausing for maintenance. But what happened is loads of people tried to make a similar product and um, they were useless and so what happened was when people went to purchase them um, they asked the question, was this the real McCoy? Hence the phrase, the real McCoy, was born. Now, when it comes to God-filled living and living the God life, I need you to know that the devil is the master of counterfeit. He's the master of it. Shame and guilt are not the real McCoy. Legalism and policies are not the real McCoy. Jesus said it was for freedom that we have been set free, no longer to be subject to a yoke of slavery. And Jesus, the Son of God, did nothing outside the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, all right? Jesus was zero resistant to the Holy Spirit and provides an example for all of us to follow in. And we need the Holy Spirit's power and presence to change us into the likeness of Christ um, while we do his works. And we desperately need to be submitted and surrendered. To the Father and to the Lordship of the Son, in order to be filled with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to decrease and He needs to increase, basically. That's what I'm saying. And transformation cannot come any other way. Otherwise, it just becomes a simple form of behavior modification. And that's not salvation. It's like you're talking to your friends, Benjamin. It's like it's behavior modification, not the real McCoy. And so we need the real McCoy, we need the real thing, we need what really happens. And this is what Peter said. Peter said, through his divine power, it's through his divine power that we may participate in his divine nature. So if we're going to operate in the divine nature of Christ, we need his divine power to be in us. And the personal journey with the Holy Spirit, I often say that a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And so if you've got a, I, I have a great friend, who, him and I preached years and years ago in Brethren days, we preached back 40 years ago together, and he went on, he lives, he's lives. he been living in England now for many years, and he's done many, many doctorates, and, and um, we have these little arguments, we've, we've stayed great friends, and um, he is quite cessationist in his views and ministry, of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so we we have these arguments. And whenever we argue, I cannot argue with his knowledge. His knowledge is exemplary, it's just out of this world. He can tie me in knots. And then I said to him sometimes, his name's John. And I said, John, you know, we used to sing the little song, You Ask Me How I Know He Lives. He lives within my heart. You can't argue with an experience. You can't argue with an experience, and so um, and in childhood I had a—I was uh, always taking things apart. I think I might have had a—I think I might have been a good engineer, uh, only for my sort of total lack of maths. But after what the disciples seen in Jesus, nothing less would do. They wanted the real McCoy. They wanted the whole real thing. And um, Jesus went on to teach them this pattern prayer that I want to look at really quickly, just for five minutes or so. Jesus could see through the long prayers of the religious leaders of the day, and he could detect their falseness. He could detect that there was no life, there was no vitality in it. And so I have found in praying, one of the helpful ways is um, Pete Gregg's great book, And How to Pray, is really good. And he talks about the little acrimon and prayer and we'd love to just chat to you through this um for a moment or two because Prayer is intimacy with God. That's what it is, isn't it? It's that sort of idea. So there's something about pause. There's something about um, this Eden mandate for man to enjoy God in deep communion, walking with God in the cool of the day. So when the Lord's Prayer begins, when he starts to give us this pattern prayer, he's saying, Our Father. I I love that because Jesus could have said, When you pray, pray My Father, because He's My Father. But he didn't. He included us in. He drew us in to this beautiful communion with the Father. And he says, when you pray, when you go to pray, pray, our Father who art in heaven. That word Father, you'll know this, is a word we get for uh, Daddy or, um, or Papa. It's a beautiful um, term of intimacy, a welcome and family framework for entering into conversation. And Jesus modeled this life of intimacy with the Father, and he took time to pause. And it's in this place that we're reminded of our true identity, sons and daughters of a heavenly Father. Um, I find that people think prayer is a one-way conversation. And they come to God with a shopping list. And they, they have it all um, memorized out. It's like the daily shopping list. And it's like the moment it's done, it's a bit like a one-way conversation. The moment it's done, we tend to just set the receiver down. <laughs> and God's about to speak back. And, and I wonder, I say to people all the time, when was the last time that you paused? When was the last time you just took time out for God to speak to you? When was the last time you listened? I have a little plaque in my study that says, be still and listen for the whisper. Be still and listen for the whisper. And so I've developed, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an active person, so I'm one of those people that when I go to pray, I see a picture crooked, and I want to fix it. Um, the corner of the mats turned up, and I want to. There's fluff on the floor. I don't know if you're like that. I'm just one of those people. I want. So I've, I've I've discovered my best my best place to pray is on my face, and I lie. I have a little rug, and I lie down in my study because then I don't see anything that needs fixed or done. And um, I found I found a. Uh, a little pattern that helps for me. So my morning prayer is pause time. My morning prayer, and it's it's a great thing to do in the morning because you don't have a pile of energy. And if it's early in the morning, it's lovely lying in the presence of God. Sometimes I listen to worship, sometimes I don't. And I just wait on God. And I might read a scripture before that and then I wait in his presence. And I don't lie for hours, um, maybe 15, 20 minutes. And then up I'm into my day uh, and then what I do, and this suits my lifestyle. It mightn't suit yours. Is midday or in and around that, I try to get 30 minutes away with God. Where I, 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 I this isn't anything to do with my reading reading pattern. This is my prayer pattern. And uh, so I, I try to get that half hour away. Most of our staff know I disappear usually in and around 12 o'clock, and um, just, and, and that's that's me. That's my that's my shopping this time. I pray for all of my kids. I have nine grandkids. I have five kids. I have 11 elders. I have 17 staff. And there on my daily, I pray for them every day. And there at that time, I present them to the Lord. And then my evening time is, uh, I try to get 30 minutes in the evening, and it's my intercession time. I'll talk about that in a moment or two. And that's the time whenever I want God to tell me what I need to pray for or who I need to pray for. And that takes time to develop that. And so at Jesus' baptism, the Father's affirmation in this pause time reminds the very thing that He wants to tell you most. Like, of all the things God could have said to Jesus at this time, He could have said, You know, you're about to fight with the devil. Here's what you need to do, because He's about to go into the wilderness to face the devil. He could have told, give Him some instruction, but He just didn't. He said, You're my son, and I love you. And I'm well pleased with you. And amazing. Of all the things that the father could have told the son at this time, he says, you're my boy, I'm pleased with you, and I love you. And he does the same with you and with me. So it's really important. So the journey of prayer is learning how to abide in the presence, so hearing his voice, John 15, um, and how to share our lives with him. And then the second one is rejoice, all right? The intimacy of God is characterized by worship. Hallowed be your name. We move from stillness to rest. to to adoration and wonder. And I love this. We become aware of who he is. We pour out our our love and affection to Jesus. We praise him for who he is. We worship because worship is the most natural and it's the only legitimate response to seeing Jesus is worship, all right? So prayer and worship flow together. Your worship this morning is intercession. It does something in the heavenlies. And I always say that the enemy cannot stand. The enemy cannot abide in the anointed worship of God's people. So when our team worshipped this morning and drew us into that, it's intercession. It's part of our prayer, part of our prayer life. All right? Um, and you, 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 you shouldn't separate those or put them into compartments. All right? It shouldn't be worship and then we'll pray and then we'll go back to worship. I know I don't mean that doesn't happen like that, but we shouldn't put it into compartments that they're different. They're the same thing. All right? And then um, ask is um, our bringing a request to him. Give us this day our daily bread. It's um, getting involved. It's John Wesley who said that prayer is where the action is. And um, when it comes to communion with God, as we worship him, we align our hearts with the lordship of Jesus and we come to this Place where we say, Your kingdom come and be on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is the primary way we partner with God and we speak forth into being uh, the things where we call this intercession. And intercession, I, I, I teach our people sometimes that intercession creates an intersection. An intersection is where two roads meet. And if you study intercession in the Old Testament, you'll find it with Moses. Whenever he comes down the mountain and the people have sinned and God's about to wipe them out, he grabs hold of God. He reminds God of his character. He grabs hold of a bunch of people that he loves and he builds something till he pulls those two together into a framework where there's a road that meets that they both in, in, intersect each other. That's what intercession is, simply. Elijah does it with Sodom... Um, would you, would you destroy the city for 50 people? Would you destroy it for 40? And he goes right down to 10 people. And they couldn't, God couldn't find 10 righteous people in Sodom. So it's building that intersection. So it's really important, all right? And, um, and, and sometimes it's basically, it's praying, if I were to take a chair, I'll not do this now, but um, if, if, I were to, if there was a chair here and I was going to pray for that, I'd be praying, for, if I laid my hands in the chair, you'd be praying for it. If I picked the chair up and walked with it, I'd be carrying it. That's the difference between praying for something and praying something through. And so when, whenever we lay our hands on a person and pray for them, that's wonderful. But sometimes we just need to pick them up in prayer. And we need to carry them in our hearts. And we need to carry this till we see the answer to prayer. All right? So that's um, intercession. And then lastly, yield. All right? The prayer starts and finishes with surrender, doesn't it? Um, we open up our clenched fists in his presence, and we yield to his purpose uh, in and through our lives. And uh, we become the answers to our own prayers, which is beautiful. And we yield to him in asking for the forgiveness of sins. And and this is, you know, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, leads not into temptation. And Jesus shows the ultimate yielding prayer in Gethsemane, doesn't. This is the prayer of relinquishment, the highest form of prayer and worship. So the disciples were not saying, Lord, teach us to raise the dead or do miracles. They were saying, Lord, teach us to pray. Like I wonder sometimes when I study prayer, I think about um, Exodus 11, when Moses went up the mountain, right, and... um, Joy, she went out onto the battlefield. Remember the battle when Moses... I, don't, I wonder when he figured out, this, this is helping and this isn't helping. I wonder how he figured that out. Did, he, did it take a moment or two? And then, but it went on all day. And we're not told of one word he prayed. I wonder what he prayed. I wonder that's intercession. I wonder, Elijah, when he, when he went and he stuck his head between his knees, that doesn't sound that comfortable and he travails in prayer, and he sends his servant out uh, seven times, and then he comes back and says, well, there's a cloud the size of a man's hand. Like, it hadn't rained in seven years. We're not told one word he prayed. We don't know what he prayed. Daniel, in this one here, in Daniel 11, which corresponds to um, Matthew 24, where um, it talks about this great verse that... um, uh, The people who know their God will be strong and carry out great expectations. And what this teaches us is that presence always precedes power and promises. All right? Always, always precedes power and promises. It always does. And so the process of Daniel 11 is people who know their God. The word for know is yada. It's a word of high intimacy. So it says Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, Genesis 4. So, yada is to intimately pursue God, all right? And then it says, be strong. The word strong is to reveal or to harden or to strengthen. And when people know God, they will get strong. And then, and then they'll do great exploits to produce, to have a fact to press in. So, there's a process of this. There's a process. People who know their God, get strong. And then they carry out great exploits. That's that's the process of it. And it's really important to understand that because what can happen is we can we can get into this idea of of nice prayers, but the prayers like like Moses's prayer changed 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 the battle, changed the future of Israel. Whatever happened on that hill, right? Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 17 changed nature. Seven years of drought came to an end with that prayer. Daniel's prayer changed the whole nation and given actually about four to six um, instructions for the, the, the next generation of people for a whole nation. Jesus in Gethsemane, where he sweat as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, changed our destiny Changed the destiny of millions and billions of people forever. And, and we don't know one word, very little, basically, of what any of them prayed. And I call those the ugly prayers of Scripture. They're not nice. They're trivial. They're pain prayers. And if we're going to see the kingdom come and establish, we pray it all the time in the Lord's Prayer, don't we? Your kingdom come, be in heaven as is on earth. And it's a nice little line. But it will only happen when somebody or people realize that the way to change the world is that somebody needs to grab the lapels of heaven and pull them to earth. Grab the lapels of heaven and pull them to earth. And we'll not do that with a nice little, Lord Jesus, we come into your most holy presence. And there's nothing wrong with that but there's gonna be something in the travail of worship and presence and intercession that needs to change the world. I finish with a story. Um, Kind of what happened to Kevin Carter. 1994, um, it ultimately caused Kevin to take his own life. Um, I'll tell you the story. He, the year before, in 1993, he took this photo in a rural part of Sudan in Africa. And Carter was a photographer with the United Nations. And the United Nations, um, they were fighting against the famine in Africa at the time. And this, where this picture was taken was a little area where around 20 people a day from this one little village were dying from starvation every day, 20 to 30 a day, and most of them kids. And, um, and it became become commonplace in the community. And the story behind this picture is that there was a UN feeding station actually really close to where this little girl, she was a little girl, and there was a feeding station really close to where this girl currently was. And she was on her way to that feeding station, and weakness overcame her, and she paused for a break. She just didn't have the energy to make it. And she was pausing, trying to regain some energy. This vulture landed detecting weakness, smelling the death raking from her body. He knew that it wouldn't be long, and he was waiting on her to die so he might feast. The tragic image was there, so photographer Kevin Carter positioned himself for the perfect picture, and he captured it, as you can see. And he would later win the Pulitzer Prize for this picture. Uh, And as the picture got famous, the question began to arise, What happened to the little girl? And this is where it all began to fall apart for him, because he didn't know. And um, in his haste to capture the picture, he failed to hang around to see what happened. And applause soon turned to ridicule. And I'm sure there were many other twists and turns in Kevin's story, but ultimately, he would take his own life in July 1994. Never ever said this but I saw the picture and I read the story and my mind goes into all kinds of things and I thought the picture would imply someone who just came to take a picture but didn't really come to get involved. I came to take a picture I just didn't come to get involved. And I think it's appropriate to, as I finish this morning to ask the question are you coming to church to just take a picture? Are you coming to get involved? Because when you jump in, it's messy. When you jump in, revival is not the status quo. You can't just be an observer. You can't just watch from the sidelines. Will you get disappointed in prayer? Of course you will. Will some of your prayers not be answered? Yeah. You see, they say yes and no and wait a while or... Um, all answers to prayer and I can cope with all of those the one I can't cope with is silence (laughs) I can cope with the yes and I can cope with the no and I can cope with the wait a while but it's when the heavens are brass it's when they seem to bounce off the ceiling and it goes on week after week after week after week and you say God where are you and then what you're praying for the exact opposite happens you thought I was coming with all the answers. <laughs> I can just pose more questions. But here's what I've learned. And I've learned this through pain and through loss in our own home. I've learned to trust him even when I don't understand him. And that's the power of presence. When you learn how to trust them, even when you don't understand them. My wife died at midnight and the 23rd of March, 2006, and my four kids at that time, we lay, we sat around her body on the bedroom floor. She died suddenly. She died of adult death syndrome, literally in the middle of a conversation. And um, she was 47. And uh, we, after the doctor had declared her dead, we sat around her body, and I said, kids, I have no idea what God's up to. I have no idea what he's doing. But we've got to trust them. We've got to trust him. Because if we don't, we're goosed. And so you learn how to trust them, even when you don't understand them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the stories of Scripture, of power and presence. And Lord, we just love the fact that you are God in the midst of us. And so, Lord, we give all of this to you this morning. We declare that you are God, and there's no one like you in all the earth. And so we thank you for the stories that encourage us in the Bible. We thank you for um, the the journey of, of faith and knowing who you are. So bless the people in this room this morning, encourage them, and strengthen them in their prayer life and in their worship life, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.